And I'm Greg Edge. We are both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. What the... Greg, I'm into field meetings just as much as the next forester, but whose idea was it to meet in a cedar swamp in June? Relax, Brad. I polled everyone, and these were the only dates available. Yeah, but, but why are we here at dusk, and doesn't the workshop start tomorrow? Well... Technically, yes, but Laura said if we wanted to be official members of the Cedar Club, emphasis on official, we needed to meet at this location and time. So just keep walking. I'm sure they're here somewhere. Did you hear that? I think I heard Laura. Bill Murray once said, whatever you do, always give 100% unless you're donating blood. And Greg, we are donating blood here, my friend. Time to head in. Fine. You can be a wimp about it, but if we get cut from that cedar club, it's on your conscience, Brad. Don't worry. Tomorrow, you and 50 of your forestry colleagues from Wisconsin and Michigan have the fantastic opportunity to speak with the Cedar Club, a group of researchers and practitioners who have been working on the ecology and management of northern white cedar for the past 23 years. And better yet, Silvacast is recording the entire event, so you can listen from the comfort of, well, not from a cedar swamp after dark. I was hoping to learn the secret handshake. Today's episode of Silvcast is brought to you by the Nelson Paint Company. Since 1940, foresters all over North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field, and the Nelspot tree guns have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. Looking for heavy-duty construction and forestry equipment? Check out McCoy Construction and Forestry, your John Deere dealer. With 16 dealerships spanning the Midwest, McCoy offers new or used construction and forestry equipment, rental, parts and service, and product support. Visit McCoyCF.com and follow them on social media to see what McCoy has to offer. Family Forest Carbon Program pays landowners to improve the health of their land and increase the long-term value of their property. The program equips landowners with resources and support to implement sustainable practices that help them reach their goals while also improving the health of their forests and our planet. To learn more about how you can access these benefits for your forests, visit familyforestcarbon.org. And now, back to the show. Yeah, come on in so uh, we don't have to talk so loud. Brad, you're right. That was a great workshop. My mosquito bites have all healed. I found that last tick. And now we can bring the Silvacast audience along with the highlights of what we learned. And maybe a good place to start is by having the Cedar Club introduce themselves and explain the purpose of their group. Today we're coming to you from beautiful Lakewood, Wisconsin, where we have the distinct privilege of talking with members of the Cedar Club. And we'll get to the, what the Cedar Club is in a second, but first, why don't we go around and introduce everyone here who's in the Cedar Club. So who wants to start? Hi, I'm Olivier Villemarcoté. I got a PhD at uh, Laval University in Quebec on cedar regeneration and deer browsing. And right now I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the uh, University of Quebec on Outaouais. Yeah, we might as well go around this table. People don't know we're at a table, Brad, but we are at a table at around a bar. Table. Yes. Oh, the bar is closed. This is, and this is a record for Silvacast. This is the most guests we've ever had on a single podcast and the most in person on a podcast. So we're setting a lot of records today. Sorry. So, Victoria, why don't you go? Going around the table. 
I am Victoria Hunter. I'm a graduate student at Michigan Technological University, uh, and I study cedar regeneration. Uh, my degree is in forest ecology and management. I am Jean-Claude Bruel, uh, just retired from Laval University, when, where I've been a professor in silviculture for more than 30 years, and uh, about 20 years I've been conducting research on uh, northern white cedar. Hey everyone, um, I'm Laura Kenefick. I'm a research forester with the U.S. Forest Service Northern Research Station in Maine. I am a uh, silviculture researcher and I have been participating in cedar research for almost as long as Jean-Claude and it was um, actually um, him who recruited me for the group. So hi, I'm. Uh, my name is Charles Tardif. I'm a forester, uh, but uh, I'm my. I work as a vice, vice president, uh, manufacturing operation for Maybeck, which is a company working in side, wood sidings and different other kinds of sidings, and especially we're kind of well known for eastern white cedar shingles, where we represent probably almost uh, 55 to 60 percent of the total market. You know, uh, in Eastern Canada. So I'm just curious, uh, how did you guys all become known as the Cedar Club and how did that all start? I would probably answer to that point. No, that I've been buying cedar uh, in Ontario, Quebec, and uh, Maine for almost 20 years when I, I start, was starting to feel that uh, asking the different foresters that were work, I was work, buying wood from what was their civiculture approach to cedar. Mm -hmm. Because I was, after all those years, I was starting to feel that, that a depletion of the, of the volume available. And that there was no statistics about it, it was more of a feeling. And I, I went to the Quebec government and asked know if somebody could work out you know a guide know that a civic culture if a civic culture guide that would help forester to to know what what the kind of management they should do and the treatment they should do because what they were doing most of them was since cedar that we're collecting collecting is mostly coming from as a companion tree of other species other species in the stand that the the, the forester were using the main species civic culture treatment that that they were applying for, to cedar, and most of the time that was not the proper one mm. to uh, regenerate that, that the species. So, so that's a, when I, I talked to the government guy, he said that's a great idea, but he said we don't have any budget to do that, so you'll have to do it by yourself. So I took a couple of. I would say probably a year, not thinking about it, and finally I decided one day, passing by, you know, the, the, the forest faculty of forestry at Laval, to stop by, and I went up and I met with Jean-Claude, and I told him what was my concern about the, the resource and, the, and the, the future of that species and the, the, the lack of knowledge about it. So, and uh, I told, I asked him if he would be interested to do something with me, and, uh, and I was looking for long-term. I didn't know what meant long-term, but I say, well, if we're going to work on that, I will support you, you know, on doing that. And, uh, the, uh, and I said, just one point, I, if you're getting in, I would like to have somebody from Maine because I'm, uh, most of the volume that I get you know, for one of my mill is from Maine. So they are important supplier to us. And, so, and that's where you know, Jean-Claude said, yeah, I just knew, I just knew a, a good forester lately in civiculturist, and that was Laura you know, out of the University of Maine in Orono. And that's pretty much how it started. You know? And mm -hmm. 23 years later, we're still working together. <laughs> so. And that was, that then developed, was it the 2012? A cedar guide is that when that was first published I believe yes and that was we had been doing a number of different studies on cedar and scientists we were publishing in journals and Charles knew that we had to communicate that information to the practitioner for it to be really useful so um, he really encouraged us to pull together what we had learned so far to make a guide and it was a little bit challenging for us because we didn't have all the answers yet and so we felt hesitant to you know to make some recommendations but we really um, you know looked at what we had done so far and felt we 
could be confident in the recommendations that we made. And so that was a really fun project to do. And in fact, it was published in English and in French simultaneously by the US Forest Service and the Canadian Forest Service. And we were later told that that publication broke the record for number of downloads in French language on the Canadian Forest Service website. So yeah, that was very exciting for us. And we are now deep into a revision of that guide um, with intention of having that finished up in coming months. So the next version is coming out. I could say also, in addition, the, the Cedar Club is not only researchers. It brings together uh, users of uh, Cedar and also managers of Cedar so that we can translate our research results into really operational work. And also this kind of group uh, helps us know exactly the needs of the practitioners. So that was a major interest of Charles when uh, building that group. And it's a very open group. And that, that was the idea. No? It was, the principle was to create knowledge that was not going to be put in a shelf or in a nice book. That the idea was to have something really done for a practitioner that the practitioner would read and use. And that's the, the format that we develop with them, asking questions. So the, the process that we have with the, the, the Cedar Club, first we have to see the Cedar Club name come from Nora. Now after a while we said, she said, we're, we're kind of growing groups, so we're now we should wear the cedar club. So, so that's where this, the, the name came from. But that the idea was to try to meet every year and a half or so, no, uh, in the uh, half a day at the meeting or or in the field or in inside, and have the, the, the student presenting their research. No, and so to the the, the new knowledge to the, the the practitioner, not waiting five years to have it available. So to try to supply the information as it was coming available, and after the the foresters, the the, the practitioner, you know, listening at those product project that were on the go, and try to correct them if there was not getting the information they needed. So that was kind of both ways, you know, both influences, the knowledge faster on the, on the, on, in the field and the field talking to the researchers saying, no, that, that's, the, the target is not exact. You should be covered this area that would help us way more. Yeah. So that was a kind of interaction and had the chance to grow the experience of the students, not to talk in front of people, talk mm-hmm. to international no, uh, no membership on that. So that was great. No, that, that for it's, all of us. it's a lot like Brad um, with Susan, Susan Stout, Stout, the conversational research yep. manager cooperatives, mm-hmm. and just kind of that combined right. effort. This is a cool example of that. In yeah, kind of exactly. Fact that we didn't, we had some examples, but this would be a really neat one that kind of mm-hmm. carry on with that. Yeah. See, Greg, there's no initiation to get into the Cedar Club. You just have to be interested in cedar. And that reminds me, we should provide some of the Cedar Club's explanation about northern white cedar silvics and ecology for those foresters who may not be familiar with this species or not work with it on a regular basis. All right, so you guys are the Cedar Club. So as long as we have you guys, we we need to kind of maybe set the stage for some of these questions because a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily familiar with white cedar. If you're working in the south or even further down south in the Midwest or, or the West Coast, maybe you don't know about it. So... Just to get us all up to speed, there are a couple things that we may establish as just like basics, like northern white cedar is long-lived, but how long-lived is it? Very long-lived, actually. Uh, there's individuals that have been found to exceed a thousand years old on the Niagara escarpments, like on really rocky high cliff areas. They're not doing too good, but they are over a thousand years old, so pretty impressive. Others uh, in northern Quebec, uh, over 900 years old, so very, very long-lived. Even in the working forest on commercial forest land, it's not uncommon to find cedar over 200 years old. And I can recall a specific cedar that we sampled on the mill yard in Maybeck that was, well, it was 13 inches or something. Not a very big tree, and it was over 350 years old. Wow. Laura, you said that white cedar is shade tolerant. How shade tolerant is that compared to other species that we may be working with here in the eastern U.S.? Well, I mean, I think it's one of our more shade-tolerant northern conifer species. It's able to persist for a very long time in the shaded understory. 
people sometimes think that a shade-tolerant species is one that prefers to grow in the shade or needs to grow in the shade, and that isn't true at all. Northern white cedar can grow in the shade and be very suppressed, but it can grow very rapidly in the sun, and Olivier has done some work looking at that. Yes, with my master's work, uh, we were looking at um, cedar plantations following clear cuts in uh, eastern Quebec, and we found some very, very fast-growing uh, trees. Uh, they would, I'm going to be in meters now, but <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> we'll have to make do. Uh, and so we would find at 25 years after planting, we would have uh, trees that would be uh, a good eight or nine meters high and uh, diameter at uh, ground level would be up to 25 centimeters. So fast growth, yeah, diameter increments up to like one centimeter. So I guess 0.4 inches. How long can cedar regeneration persist in an understory? Like how long can it be in that suppressed state? I know today we are looking at some seedlings in the field. Well, uh, we did some uh, aging on the uh, on seedlings in uh, stands in Quebec, and I would say the, the seedlings that we had, most of them were between 20 and 50 years of age. But we had a few that were even over 90 years of age and were well, still well, seedlings. So that probably tops sugar maple we consider in that 30 to 50 starts to max out. Yeah, you think about sugar maple hemlock playing the long game, but that's really playing the long game. It's a real long game. It definitely yeah. confirms shade tolerance. Well, and you also have to consider layering, um, which sorry, now I'm going to laugh because there was mention of a drinking game. Hey! <laughs> you said we couldn't do that. So because cedar seedlings and small saplings can be pressed down by the snow and then become rooted to the ground, you can have one that can sort of move slowly along the ground, constantly getting pushed down and rooting and not growing very much in height for a very, very long time. And so often, you know, we think about the age of a seedling from where it comes out of the ground or is above the moss, but for cedar, um, it could actually have grown many, many years um, and be covered up by the moss and be layered, and you wouldn't necessarily know that if you cut it off. So it's almost kind of renewing itself in a way if it's layering and regrowing, layering and regrowing. What I think is unique and what in preparation for today's conversation, it sounded like layering is really important as a regeneration strategy for white cedar, which I would have never, I mean, you, you hear about it, but I would have never guessed that. I feel like I got that fundamentally wrong. Yes, that's very true. And Jean-Claude also has done some research on this, but I can say from my own work, we've excavated a lot of cedar regeneration and lowland stands and many, many that look like seedlings. They look like a single stem coming out of the ground. Once you dig underneath, you find that it's connected to others. And it was a seedling that got pushed down and it grew roots to the ground. And one thing that's interesting is we often think about layering as sort of this, like a mature tree resting, I'm making hand motions, that's completely not helpful. We, we think of layering as a mature tree resting a branch on the ground, which then becomes rooted. That doesn't seem to be the primary mechanism with cedar. It seems to be seedlings and saplings that get pushed down to the ground and then are rooted. So that's a little different than the way we think of layering from a branch, typically. Yeah. And Jean-Claude, would you like to add? Yeah, so, uh, quite often we think uh, about layering on lowlands, but that's not only occurring on lowlands. On music science, you'll find also a significant amount of layering. So it's not only typical of lowlands. And that brings up kind of an issue of what kind of sites do we typically find cedar? I know we took you all to a site today that was our typical cedar swamp lowland, but um, do the, does cedar occur in mixed stands? Or how do we find this? Um, across its range? I think it, there is a lot of variation. Uh, the study, the, the stands that I've been studying uh, included quite often uh, yellow birch, red spruce, white spruce, uh, hemlock, so mixed stands, uh, balsam fir also. In eastern Quebec, you have a lot of stands that have balsam fir and uh, mm -hmm. cedar. 
cedar is really interesting in that it occurs both as a companion species in mixed stands on uplands, but also in um, near pure stands on lowlands. And that would include swamps and seeps, where seeps are stands where there's moving groundwater, often at the toe of a slope. And then we see them on old field stands on uplands and mixed with yellow birch and other species, as Jean-Claude mentioned. And then we see cedar on cliff faces and summits. And so it has a very wide distribution in terms of habitat. Huh. Yeah, I've seen it growing in old quarry sites. Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem right for cedar, but... Or often on forest road sites, uh, oh. on the side of forest road, where the, it, it, it's, it's not really, like, good substrate for most trees, but you'll, you'll get a ton of little cedar seedlings wherever there's not too many deer anyways. And is that the, the seed bed that's created there? Is that like a mineral seed bed? Would that be appropriate for yeah. cedar? Yes. Uh, in fact, when you look at where cedar is establishing, uh, dead wood is a favorite substrate. And uh, if you can provide mineral soil, it's also a good substrate. We have a colleague um, who was an early member of the Cedar Club, Jean-Martin Lussier, from the Canadian Forest Service. And sometimes when we do workshops, he would encourage participants to do the twist because exposing the mineral soil by scarification, disrupting the litter layer, um, is thought to be beneficial for cedar. And so he would have all the foresters doing the twist before we <laughs> left our field. <laughs> Brad, it's hard to have a discussion with field foresters about white cedar silviculture without having one topic always surface. Yeah, deer. Yes, of course, deer. And in this following segment, the Cedar Club discusses this somewhat unique relationship between white-tailed deer and northern white cedar. On the one hand, cedar is really important habitat for deer. But on the other, deer present significant challenges to cedar recruitment. Let's hear what the club has to say. Maybe, so you mentioned a drinking game earlier, and I suppose the real word, Greg, that we should have used for, if we were going to have a drinking game as a part of Silvercast, it probably should be deer, because every episode we mention deer, and we've been talking about regeneration, and we get seed beds and everything, but we always have that bugaboo about deer, so is deer a problem across the range from northern white cedar, or is it sporadic? How does that, what's your impression? Well, the northern range of deer is pretty much the northern range of cedar. So the short answer is yes, but then there's a massive gradient in deer uh, densities and deer browsing pressure uh, throughout that range. So in our parts, in Quebec, uh, deer browsing pressure is much, much lower than it would be in, in, in most of the states. Yeah, so lots of variation. And in areas where browsing pressure is very, very high, then you're going to have some massive problems. And it's it's often it's going to be nearly systematic where every cedar ceiling can be uh, browsed. But in our parts, it's going to be a little bit more sporadic, and it's more it's going to be focused more on uh, winter uh, winter yarding areas, where uh, deer will aggregate over the winter to have good cover and good food, uh, and, and try to survive the harsh winters. Cedar is a really important species for white-tailed deer, both because it provides that winter habitat um, by protecting them from temperatures and the wind, but mostly reducing snow depth so they don't have to expend so much energy to move through the stand. And it's also a very um, important browse species for deer. And during the winter when other things aren't available, northern white cedar can be really critical for helping the deer to make it. That is, I mean, a fundamental problem for any species that's growing slowly, kind of persisting in deer range for, like for deer heights for a long period of time. That's just a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And so that's why we're seeing now range-wide, um, we see it throughout the Northeast, and I know you do here in the Lake States, widespread recruitment failures of northern white cedar. We often talk about regeneration failure, but it isn't a regeneration failure per se because the, the species can regenerate. But then it gets eaten by deer and is unable to recruit or grow to larger sizes and ultimately become a full-size tree. And that can happen regardless of if the deer browsing is 
a recurrent every single year or if it's just the one year where you get the it can be one year one deer who really likes cedar and it, and the whole stand or, or pocket of the stand can be the, the cedar regeneration is going to be completely removed so uh, yeah only one single event can have drastic consequences yeah I was going to add that um, we're currently involved in a project with some folks in Michigan in the Department of Natural Resources, and Victoria, who's with us today, has been working on that, and she has been visiting a lot of cedar stands in the field. I think you went to over 100, is that right? We did, yeah. We visited 128 cedar swamps. These were sites that had a harvest history. And we also went and visited nearly 50 unharvested cedar swamps that did not have a harvest history. And one of the things you were looking at was deer impacts on those sites. And mm -hmm. what were you seeing when you were out there? So we were finding that if we could observe a browse line on site, if there was an observable browse line, then cedar recruitment was nearly non-existent. Mm -hmm. We weren't finding sap cedar saplings present if there was an observed browse line. Yeah. So I think that's going to be a major question for foresters. Is deer the main cause of cedar's inability to regenerate across its range? Or does it have other issues that are impacting that regeneration? Yeah. But it, I would say it tends to be the main cause, but it's very easy to blame deer for everything. Right. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to, to say that deer are uh, the issue when there are other issues, and some of them are uh, because of what silviculturalists do, like the, the, the silvicultural decisions we do. So there, there, there is definitely a large part that's due to deer, but there's other things. There's uh, the substrate availability, uh, there's uh, canopy openings, there's rotation lengths, all of these kinds of things can play their roles. I agree with what Olivier said, but I think I would refine that a little further, and I would say in some cases, it's because of a lack of silviculture that we have these problems. Yeah. I think sometimes we forget that we need to be managing a species for what is to come next instead of what we can um, take to the mill. And often with cedar, unfortunately, because there hasn't historically been really good guidance about appropriate silvicultural practices, there's been a tendency to just harvest cedar. And if we don't do that in a way that's thoughtful about maintaining the right amount of light, the right amount of seed and moisture, then even without deer, I think that we would have problems regenerating and recruiting cedar. But there's no doubt that um, deer are, in many places, the overriding factor. That's a good point because we were, I think we were talking about it in the field earlier today that we've had silvicultural guidance in the past that may have been well intended but may not have been entirely accurate mm -hmm. or given us the best results and so we need more of that going forward. So whether it was well intentioned or otherwise, we probably contributed to the problems in some way, shape or form. And we found that in the sites that we visited in Michigan. So the silviculture treatment really did seem to make a difference, especially how wide you were making those gaps. Mm -hmm. um, so those really large clear cuts weren't showing many seedlings or saplings, but once you had thinner openings, um, we were finding more regeneration. It wasn't consistent, but there was more. I mean, it makes sense when we think about the silvics of the species and, you know, what the conditions are that perpetuate it naturally, right? A moisture holding substrate, a partially shaded environment, not too much competition. Those are the things that work well for cedar. We tend to think of cedar as um, a species that just takes a long time to get where it's going in, in the forest. I know Olivier's grew really fast out in the open, but cedar can persist and take advantage of canopy openings again and again. So now we get to the rub. How can cedar be effectively regenerated both in the face of deer browse, but also, as Laura begins discussing, how we can create the conditions where cedar thrives? As is often the case, a good place to start is with the natural disturbance patterns that favored cedar regeneration and recruitment. And this is where Jean-Claude picks up the discussion. Bonus points if you can identify the bartender in this segment. All right. That's something that you found in your work, Jean-Claude. Yes. We look at the... Uh growth for quite a long time, for uh, over a hundred years. 
uh, trying to link the uh, growth patterns of uh, different species with known uh, natural disturbances, mostly uh, spruce butter or malbrake. And what we found is that cedar uh, normally was able to survive a number of uh, suppression and release periods uh, before it could reach uh, the main canopy. So we stated it's there with a slow growth, and then there's a canopy opening. The, the response of seedling and sapling is quite good and can, can last quite long also. And then it's suppressed again, and then another uh, outbreak or another disturbance occurs, and it, this, the pattern starts again until it is able to reach in, within the main canopy. Jean-Claude, what would have been those natural disturbance patterns? Would it have been mostly wind disturbance? Uh, in, our case, in our case, we were, we're still working to have a better view on that, but it's look, it looks like it is mostly the spruce bloodworm outbreak because balsamfir was present in these, oh. uh, mm. in these towns. So we know that we, we've been able to uh, identify some Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Are you guys going to be a little while yet? Or? Um, yep, probably. Is that okay? Okay, yeah, it's fine. I just was, um, I'm getting out, but if you just make oh. sure that door is locked. Yeah, okay. I, I told him at the bar we'd let him know when we were done. Okay, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. Yep. So, uh, most of the uh, natural disturbances that we had are probably through the bottom outbreaks. We know uh, during that period there were three main outbreaks. One was of lower severity. But for the two others, we see clear responses in, uh, for yellow birch and also for uh, cedar. So very strong responses. That's for natural disturbances. And we also look at growth response after partial cutting, and uh, they were able to respond quite well. In many cases, the growth remained over the previous growth for 20 to 30 years. And I would add, you know, the spruce budworm outbreak, that's uh, an insect pest that's affecting a companion species of cedar. There aren't many um, pests that affect cedar. There is the arborvitae leaf miner, but it tends not to cause widespread mortality. So in the absence of a spruce budworm outbreak, I think probably individual tree mortality from senescence or wind throw, yep. small gaps would really be uh, the norm in unmanaged cedar stands. I'll channel our friend Jed for a uh -oh. second. I know what you're going to yes. ask. Uh, historically, fire was fairly common in these landscapes. Would it have played a role in cedar, with cedar? There's a lot of debate about that topic right now. And um, our colleague, Rod Chibner, who is um, a Lake States member of the Cedar Club, um, has done some work looking at the peat in cedar swamps. And he'll pull up these amazing cores that um, have fragments of wood in them that are thousands of years old. And they have not found any sign of charcoal in there. So as far as fire is concerned in cedar-dominated ecosystems, if fire is occurring, it's not occurring at an intensity that is great enough to leave a record in the peat that is sampled. However, I know that there are different methodologies out there, and there's been Jed's work, which has shown a more frequent fire interval, and I think maybe we can say that we don't know the final answer on that yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that observation and other studies have indicated that fire can be quite lethal to northern white cedar. Um, so we're certainly not in a place where we would be recommending prescribed fire for that species. But whether fire sometimes has occurred there, um, I think that it's not crazy that that would happen. I don't think it's an important and frequent natural disturbance agent in the cedar stands that we are working in. And when you look at the silvics of cedar, uh, there's not many characteristics that make it uh, very... Fire adapted. Yeah, fire adapted. Like, it's got very thin bark. Uh, regeneration grows really slowly. It's not a, it's not a early successional species. It's not, you know, it's not a uh, very good competitor. It's a, so there's a lot of things that point towards it not being a good competitor following fire. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't be uh, positive, but it's not what we've uh, observed in most cases. So kind of thinking about all of these characteristics of regeneration that we we're talking about, we've talked about 
kind of its ability to uh, tolerate shade, its ability to persist in that understory, the fact that it likes maybe both deadwood substrates, but also bare mineral soil substrates, and it has this layering, drink, grab, <laughs> ability. So putting all of those things together, if a forester is trying to regen regenerate a stand, like what types of practices do we see being the most successful? We, well, in fact, the, the, the work I did was started with a study where we compared uh, an uncut control, 25% uh, basal area removal, 50% basal area removal and gaps that were a little over 600 square meters. So the best establishment occurred within the 25 and 50% basal area removal. It was higher than within the uncut control and higher also, much higher than within the gap. But uh, we also planted some uh, cedar there to see how, what were uh, the best growing conditions once the seedlings are, were established, and those were in gaps. So the more light, once the seedling is established, it will benefit from more light. So these, these yeast conditions then were more present within the, the gap. So you should favor establishing the regeneration within some shade under a partial canopy. And then once they're established, then you could promote their growth and release them. But then it has to be balanced also with competition because the, the more you open the canopy, the more faster growing competition is going to come. So it just underlines the importance of your regeneration, your cedar regeneration being well established before you allow for more diverse and fast growing regenera uh, competition. And what do we come. mean by well established? It depends if deer is present. <laughs> yeah. So if deer is there, uh, I would say that a well established cedar would be above the browsing line. So depending on snowpack, that would mean anywhere between uh, 2.2 meters to 3 meters. So once you've reached that point, you're, you're safe, you're good to go. Uh, if there is not a big issue, then uh, I, would, I would say much lower uh, uh, cedars are well established, say 20 centimeters uh, would be a pretty well established uh, cedar uh, seedling. Well, and I think we can also take some lessons from what we see in unmanaged stands my colleague Sean Fravor at the University of Maine has been doing research in old growth cedar forests and looking at reconstructing rates of canopy disturbance and um, the development of the trees over time. And what he's found is that in old growth cedar stands, there is a canopy disturbance rate of about half a percent per year. So very low and on the high end, two and a half percent per year. And so that is anywhere from Oh my gosh, now I have to do math. Something like on a 10 year period, that is not a lot of canopy opening. Right, right. Um, and rarely more than that. And so taking the work that Jean-Claude has done previously and how we see tendency for cedar to recruit to the canopy through multiple release events, some previous work we did across Maine, which showed something like 60% of cedar seemed to have established and grown in um, an under canopy position, so as advanced regeneration, with this very low canopy turnover rate, it does suggest that this idea of partial harvesting some form of multi-age management or a variant of shelter wood um, would have a good chance of being successful in the absence of excessive deer browsing. A lot of our guidance in the past has talked about even age systems in order to work with that. So this would be a fundamental change, suggesting that, no, maybe we should really be approaching these irregular, multi-aged kind of conditions and using that. I think that's kind of important. Yeah, I think that is an important distinction to make. And in Victoria's work, she's found that the, the width of strips can be really important. So, you know, you mentioned the uneven age, the even aged, pardon me. You mentioned the even aged management, and that's been done both in large, like clear cut blocks and also in strips. And some of the strips were successful, right, Victoria? Some of, some of the strips were successful. We found that across Michigan, about 50% of the time, we were seeing cedar successfully recruit in strip cuts. Now that was by far the best prescription that we sampled, although I will caveat that with 
we were really only sampling these even age management prescriptions. So we weren't finding very many irregular, you know, irregular shelter woods, which is now the prescription that a lot of folks are starting to recommend in the sites. Um, we were finding a lot of clear cut with residuals, strip cuts, large patch cuts. Um, and so across those even age management regimes, we were finding that the thinner strip cuts were doing better. So I think that's interesting because within strip cuts, it matters how wide the strip mm -hmm. is. And so the success you were seeing, though not assured, was in the narrower strip cuts, which were closer to a tree height. Correct. Right. Yeah, these and, were about a tree height. You know, I think if you're doing a strip, particularly if you don't have established advanced regeneration and you're relying on regeneration from seed, that's risky, right? Mm -hmm. You might or might not get it. And if you are releasing advanced regeneration, you already have something there to work with. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that Jean-Claude always emphasizes when we do these workshops is to work with what you have. That's really important with cedar because of the uncertainty of reliable regeneration. And it is such a poor competitor. You know, disturbance could create good substrate for cedar, but it also creates good substrate for a lot of other things. And I was talking about that three meter height at which you're um, outside the reach of browsing. Well, for, for cedar, it can take anywhere between 10 years for the best case scenario, all the way up to over 70 years. and. 100 years and even more so if you're if you're spending a hundred years within browsing within deer browsing reach that's a lot of potential mm -hmm. for problems right that are accumulating over time and so even just starting with advanced regeneration that's just a foot high gives you uh, a lot of time helps a lot in terms of you know, getting faster to that to that line to that three meter line but what i'm hearing well, Victoria, in those, you said the narrower strip Correct. shelter woods or strip yeah. clear cuts, depending and on how you want to buy them. we were finding that those strips that were placed in the landscape, they weren't even a true even age management. So those strips were placed, you know, 50 years ago, and they didn't go in and return mm -hmm. and remove the leaf strips. So typically, the leaf strips were left. And so they were just placing these one-time strips. Mm -hmm. And so that actually made a really nice opportunity for research because the leaf strips continued to be dominated by cedar. Correct. And the strips that were harvested often are not. Could you plant into those strips in situations like that, knowing they do well in slightly more open conditions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're actually trying that with some restoration projects right now where we've gone into strip cuts that were done about 50 years ago and regeneration failed. We're working in alder sites where alder came in and really dominated the site. So we're removing the alder and then planting cedar. And we just did that this spring, so we're going to follow that and see how successful those planted cedar are. Yeah, we found that finding suitable planting sites is difficult, especially yeah. on those really wet soils. Um, you need to look for the higher microsites, but not too high. We've had a really hot, dry spring, and so we are worried that um, those planted cedar might have had a hard time. Yeah. But So Victoria brings something up that's actually really important that I think not everyone knows, and that is that although we tend to find cedar on wet sites, cedar cannot stand to be inundated for very long periods of time. So sites that have moving groundwater that is rich in oxygen and a seasonally high water table are suitable for cedar, but sites that have persistently high water are not good sites for them. And so the way that cedar persists on those sites is that they're growing on these small mounds that are made up of decomposed deadwood or the roots of other trees. And after you've done a strip clear cut of the cedar and you removed that from the site, over time that microtopography can break down and the soils can change as well. And that can create a substrate or a topographic condition that's not as favorable for cedar as it was when the cedar were there. So it becomes an extra impediment to restoration. Yeah. So now we're struggling that with restoration. Fifty years later, there's not many deadwood sites that are suitable yeah. for planting. 
Well, there's something we've been talking about, just lowland cedar. But that's good to know that the, the cedar grows real well in other conditions also. And mostly probably where you know, we're in transition between lowland and high and upland. You know, that, that where the seepage is kind of wet, fast water. You know, that's probably where it grows really well. And we we also find that you know, as much as it's a, a companion tree with spruce and fir stands, that is also a companion tree with uh, yellow cedar, uh, yellow, uh, yellow birch. Yeah. Yellow birch and that does it does really well with music on music soil with the uh, soil with the uh, so kind of that transition yellow, yellow phase between the lowlands and the uplands. Yes, that's a, that's a prime, we and nice we get quality. nice quality. Mm-hmm. We also find in those upland stands or mixed stands small pockets of cedar, and one of the um, recommendations from our previous guide was to identify those when you're managing. We call those micro stands, and you would treat that micro stand in a way that is beneficial for cedar and which might be different than the silviculture you do in the rest of the stand for, say, yellow birch or other companion species. And that's a major thing when you're thinking about cedar because it's got very, it's, it, it lives very long, it grows very slowly, it's a shade tolerant, and all of its companion species, they tend to be much faster growing. So when you're thinking about rotations and you're thinking about uh, uh, your silvicultural prescription over time, it, it, you really need to shift your mindset to another completely different time frame if you really want to, to promote cedar. Uh, yeah, if you're looking yeah. That can be cut. So what I, just let me summarize and tell me if I'm off base, but the message I'm getting is kind of slow and patient is really the strategy with cedar. And so if you're looking at these regeneration methods, it's slowly disturbing maybe that light level and that um, substrate and then um, giving that enough time to establish and then slowly releasing that, which is, as you said, different than maybe a lot of the other, even mid-successional species that we're looking at, that we can, you can move those things along a lot faster. So does that sound right? It's right, but it doesn't mean that we can't accelerate things, though, because we don't want people to think that it that cedars only we can only manage cedar if we're going really slow and waiting 200 years for like it can we can still accelerate things through uh, through our management. So that would be release after establishment. Um, cedar also can do well planted in an open, relatively open condition. I mean, you had plantations for your dissertation work, Olivia, didn't you? Yeah, so I had, I talked earlier about uh, plantations we had for my master's, they were uh, after clear cut, so in full sun conditions. They were doing really well, but they had no competition. Then I also uh, made a, did a plantation from uh, in my PhD where we uh, compared two light level. We had full sun conditions and we had uh, partial shade, where about 50% shade conditions, so comparable to the prescription that we're, we're suggesting, right? And in that 50% shaded conditions they were growing much 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 faster so that those were of course those were, those were really good growing conditions but we would get like 50 70 centimeter high growth within a year so when again when you go back to trying to get over that browse line that's pretty quick mm-hmm. so that means that in the right condition if you say you do some infill planting with the proper canopy opening, and at the same time, you have a dip in the deer population because of more hunting pressure, because of a harsher winter, or something like that. And if you can go at that time, well, maybe you're only going to need five or ten years to actually recruit some cedar. <laughs> and playing the long game, though, so this is kind of that was making me think that conversation earlier today so if we're playing this long game we need this lower or we need to increase light level slightly in order to establish get some regeneration on the ground which we then work with later that when we're working in these stands we tend to separate tending operations or intermediate treatments and natural regeneration sounds like here maybe there isn't a difference maybe we're maybe we're getting both of those at the same time Yeah, we talked about this a little earlier and and went down like a rabbit hole about silviculture terminology. But I think think there's an important idea here, which is that you need to be thinking about the future stand through all stages of stand tending. But in this specific case, I think that 
cedar, like some of the other very shade tolerant species, has the potential to establish in the partially shaded understory when you're doing a thinning. So even if your primary objective is to, you know, capture mortality or free up the better trees in the main canopy, if you're increasing sunlight to the forest floor, you could be establishing some regeneration in advance of a later shelterwood sequence. And so I think cedar is a good example of a species where you could regard your thinning also as sort of the first step in a multi-stage shelterwood. Okay. So to put that into silvicultural regeneration method terminology. Oh boy, here so, we go. Okay. Well, I'm just trying to clarify it in my own mind. So, so maybe during that tending phase, you call it a thinning, and you're thinning to release crowns and mm -hmm. similar things to what we're doing. But you also have in the back of the mind that you are starting to prep that site for regeneration and possibly getting some regeneration on the ground. And then you're looking at down the road, would that start to look more like a shelter would? You would start to open that up a little bit more, but yes. maybe at a slow pace? That would be my recommendation. I mean, to use the terminology that we have in Maine, and I know it's different everywhere, we would call, so it's a thinning, but it's also a shelter wood establishment cut mm -hmm. because you're getting some regeneration established. And then I think that would set you up in a, a later entry to um, do perhaps a partial overstory release. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, People have different reasons for managing, and, and having an even age stand is not inappropriate um, generally. But from the perspective of cedar, keeping retention even beyond what would normally be the final overstory removal, I think is something that uh, our group feels strongly about, um, not just because of the potential longevity of the um, species, but because it creates insurance. If you have a, then a recruitment failure, a regeneration failure, you haven't already taken away all your seed trees. Mm -hmm. How long do you envision that process taking? That's a hard one because we, again, depending on deer presence, right? But even without deer, <laughs> yeah. it's always the caveat. It's always the caveat. <laughs> it is an important caveat, though. Yeah, it yeah, it, it depends. I mean, it, if you're looking for irregular shelter wood, but you're going to need to give it some time. So I can say we did, so we have done um, some experimental operational scale irregular shelter wood. So that's a combination of what we would call thinning in the matrix, which hopefully will also act as an establishment cut in some small gap, less than one to two tree height wide um, openings for release. And we've done some modeling on that and project that we can recover the volume harvested, which was about 30% in about 20 years. And then you could potentially go back in and I think do a heavier cut to do release in the matrix. I mean, honestly, cedar, it's not like it's mature at 100 years. Right. Um, so you could carry these for a very long time. And I think it's more going to be the the size and the density of the trees and their vigor that dictates when you should do these things and their age. And I would be surprised, depending on, to do an operational entry, you're going to have to have at least 20% removal. And it's probably going to take a couple decades at least before you could come back in and cut again. Yeah. feels like we kind of have to, like sometimes as foresters, we want to plan things out. And this feels like we have to be a little more opportunistic and kind of just react to what's happening instead of trying to make it do something. I think that's a good attitude to have, and it fits in really well with some of the recommendations that Olivier has made about taking advantage of times when maybe the deer population is, is lower for whatever reason. This sometimes happens over the long term, or the deer are drawn off to a different area where they have historically been, and, and perhaps do some management for cedar then. Gotta love it, Brad. We almost get kicked out of the bar. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time. We both went to point. <laughs> True. Well, and finally, as you often like to do, Brad, we wrapped up our conversation with the Cedar Club by asking your famous wild hair questions. 
okay, Silvercast, um, Silvercast wild, wild hair for one thing. So I, I was really surprised in prepping for this to learn that you can. What's you can a wild hair, Brad? <laughs> it's a, it's a silvicultural term, Greg. We'll oh, have to okay. look it up you later. Just it yeah. Better. Okay. So I was really surprised to learn that you can take cuttings of cedar. And, and in the nursery trade, that's what they do. They basically start them from cuttings. So is there, is there anything to that that could be used as foresters? Could, can you actually start one by sticking one in the ground? So this is an excellent question, and it's a project that um, a colleague of mine at the University of Maine has been working on. He's been taking um, branchlets of cedar in the field, cutting them off, and then um, sticking them in the ground, and coming back at intervals to see if they've rooted. And we call this the pinning and jam study because he's jamming things in the ground and I'm taking small seedlings and I'm, I'm pinning them to the ground with landscape staples onto different substrates to see if I can make them root. root. And um, he did have limited success with um, rooting from jamming cedar branches into the ground. So it does occasionally happen, but it seems not to be super reliable. I thought it was just a wild here Brad question. <laughs> Can we simply stick young cedar branches in the ground? Well, I, who knew? Maybe it worked. I, the technical term is jamming, though. That's jamming, okay, yeah. Yeah. We'll have to put that one in the glossary. Uh-huh. Okay, I have a wild here question, too, because this one has come up in the past. Can you take a reliable site index in cedar? So I'll, I'll speak to my experience on this, and that is that because so many of the cedar are hollow, we tend not to be able to get a full increment core. The other challenges, even if you can, they often have prolonged periods of suppression, right. and we want to use trees that are free to grow for site index. Now, there is a workaround that my colleague, um, Bob Seymour, who's retired professor of silviculture in Maine, came up with, and that is if you have periods during the growth of the tree that are free to grow, you can measure those rings and then interpolate them over the suppressed period. So say if it wasn't suppressed, then it would have been this many years. And you can basically come up with an adjusted age then mm. that you can use for site index. I don't know any other way to mm. do it. But we look at that site index with a big grain of salt going, hmm, I don't know. I think what I would do in a situation like that is um, if you could get site index from a companion species in the stand, um, there yeah. are some ways where you can use site index for something else. Um, cross. To, yeah. yeah. Yep, that's probably the best workaround. And, and Greg, I know we've just come out with, in the last couple of years, a wetland forest habitat type classification system, which might be another way to qualify productivity potential but we're still in our infancy with we know what it is but we don't know what the implications of that are for a lot of species so it's interesting that you mention wetlands because I will admit um, as a forester that I didn't at first get that what we call cedar lowlands are in fact many times what aquatic ecologists call forested wetlands um, but they are um, in fact the same thing possibly I'm the only one that didn't know that yeah. Well, no. <laughs> well, we've also found, um, speaking of things that people didn't know, it turns out um, that a lot of cedar stands are um, full of clams. Clams? Clams. Hmm. This is this is real. Wow. I know. Like, like muscle clams? They're called fingernail clams. Okay. And they're really tiny. They're like, they're called pea clams or fingernail clams because they're similar in size to your fingernail. And um, these are, they're fresh water, and they are often found in vernal pools, and they're quite extensive in many uh, cedar forested wetlands. Is that across the range that you have those? Or? I'm not sure. You know, this is something that some of my colleagues from the USGS um, over in Maine have been looking at, and I mentioned it too. Um, our colleague Rod Chimner yesterday, and he wasn't at all surprised by this because oh. he's a different kind of scientist than I am. I'm a forester. I didn't know that there were clams in cedar stands. Yeah, we're always looking at the trees. Yeah, so they are, I've now been given permission by the aquatic ecologist to call lowland cedar, cedar stands forested clam flats. <laughs> 
Laura, you mentioned this when we started this conversation, but all of you in the Cedar Club are working on an updated version of this guide, and I assume maybe with a little more detail, um, it sounds like, in terms of the silviculture of the species. Absolutely. When should we maybe think that this might come out? So we're laughing now because if you had asked us that a year ago, we would have said, oh, in a few months. And if you asked us this, this last uh -oh. winter, we would have said, oh, by May. And now here it is June. And we're going to say by the end of the summer. But that is our, um, we, are, we are seriously committed to that. And uh, so hopefully later this year. I'm going to say later this year. <laughs> it's out in the public now. I know, I can't take it back. Well, I have to add a caveat to that, which is later this year, but it depends on how fast the Forest Service publishes it. But we will have a draft for review by, you know, interested practitioners and researchers um, before later this year. <laughs> well, we've already established that this species grows really slow. So. That's right. That's <laughs> by the end of the year. That's right. But we don't live for 400 years. <laughs> well, we really look forward to that, and we really appreciate all of you both coming here to Lakewood, Wisconsin for a workshop. That's a long ways to travel, and also for talking with us on Silvacast, because this is a real challenging forest type for our foresters and one that we've been scratching our heads over for a long time. So really appreciate all of you coming. Yeah. No, this has been a real treat having you guys here and just hearing from you guys today, just kind of back and forth. That's been really incredible. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So now you all are members of the Cedar Club. Well, I, Is there yeah. a handshake? <laughs> you have to come up with one. Oh, we can, no, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. Cedar Club says okay. Okay. <laughs> the, the idea of uh, two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Uh, Greg, what are you doing? Practicing. You heard Laura. I've been given the solemn responsibility of creating the Cedar Club secret handshake. Now, she said handshake, Greg, not dabbing, twisting. I'm not sure <laughs> what you're doing over there. While you're doing that, I want to thank everyone for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or a comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Susan Barrett, Editor-in-Chief, Logan Badan, our IT master, theme music by Paul Freider, and of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. 